Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Sadie Menacanon about musicology. Sadie is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, where her research focuses on historical musicology and the intersection of music and visual culture, and how music can create metaphorical spaces in opera and other mediums. We'll be talking about her research and its implications, and ask her why you'd call her if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Sadie. Sadie, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm here in Toronto, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and happy to be chatting across the Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit dreary in London right now, (laughs) but that's, that's always a good day too. So why don't we just get started? Give us a little bit of your background. What are you up to in in musicology? Sure. I'm currently between the second and the third year of my PhD um, at U of T, University of Toronto in historical musicology. And before this degree, I did my master's in musicology also at U of Toronto. And before that, I was doing a bachelor of music at McGill in Montreal. And in your Bachelor of Music, was it a specific instrument or was it most, were you also playing music? Yeah, absolutely. So in the Bachelor of Music, I technically studied music history. That was technically my major, but we all have an instrument specialty also. So I was studying piano while I was there. All right. So let's dive right in with kind of an explain like I'm five of what you do. So what exactly is musicology? Oh man. So musicology is so many things, but in a nutshell, musicology is thinking deeply about how people shape music and how music shapes people. Hmm. So just the world around us and historically, how are music and people, whether that's composers or everyday people, how are those two factors just shaping each other, essentially? Musicology encompasses like a super, super broad range of of topics that people study. So I've known people that have studied everything from medieval chant through Beyonce. Perfect. So in such a field that is so diverse and broad, what did you specifically do? Yeah. So I work on the spiel that I give, you know, at school when people say, so what do you do? I work on music and visual culture in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And I have a special interest right now, especially in Austro-German opera, modernism, Mm -hmm. and the history of technology and urban environments a little bit also. So what piqued your interest in that? Was that you had an interest in German and Austrian opera or was it something that you kind of fell upon after doing research in other areas? You know, I kind of stumbled upon it. So I went in to my bachelor's knowing that I loved music. I've always loved a lot of different styles of music. I've always played a ton of music. I was also always that person that was fascinated with like behind the scenes in film, you know, like any of the special features, like I would be obsessed with watching that type of stuff. And I loved history. So all of these things sort of started coming together. And then I took a class with this absolutely fantastic prof at McGill named uh, Chip Weitzel. And the class was opera after 1900. And it was such a fantastic class. And like, I was absolutely like gobsmacked by some of the work that we were studying. And I didn't have a huge background in opera at all. And some of the work that we were introduced to in that class, I'm still fascinated by today. And that's what really got me into the specific like, yeah, geographic area and the era that I'm that I'm really interested in. So you said 1900s area of time? Yeah, early. Like I sort of work on things that are like 1880s through 
1933, I would say. Yeah. Right now I'm working mostly around World War One, like really early 20th century. Interesting. So we've talked to historians before who have a lot of documentation about what's going on, but even then the documentation isn't perfect. When you're talking about audio and audio recordings, <laughs> how available is that information? Yeah. So what the kind of research that we do relies, I think musicologists have to be jacks of all trades in a lot of ways, especially in contemporary musicology. So the data that we gather and like the kind of analysis of historical documents that we do is very similar to kind of a regular historian, except for we also look at musical scores. So I do a lot of score analysis because some of the operas that I'm studying, there's no video recording, absolutely. Like I'll probably never see them. Maybe there's an audio recording from the 1990s or something, right? Like some you know German production company made a recording of this opera in the 90s or whatever. But interestingly, yeah, of course, we don't really have except for really famous works, we don't really have recordings from the 20s and 30s, at least of the work that I'm studying. Or for example, yeah, we'll look at a lot of reviews, especially the Viennese were fascinated by theater. And so their newspapers are full of opera reviews, criticism, really, really like high level intellectual sort of engagement with these works. So reading that type of journalism is actually really eye opening. We read correspondence also like composers correspondence, but we rely a lot on the nitty gritty material history. So the visual history, like advertising and, and that type of stuff too. Wow. Okay. And a lot of your work as well is based on how the actual physical presence of the stage is influenced by music. So do you have visual recordings as well? Or do you really don't rely on descriptions of these? Um, again, 1900s German. Do you, do you read 1900s German? Yeah. So I'm working on my German right now as we speak, actually, because I have to yeah be able to understand the libretti. So the text of the opera, like what are they singing? What are the words they're singing? And also, yeah, reviews, being able to read those. I also do a lot of like scholarly research in German. So some of the things that I'm reading about have actually never been written about in English on a secondary literature level. So I'm trying to work on my German translation. <laughs> but there's also a lot of visual like ephemera from these productions that you can see in the form of like stage design. Wow. So sometimes there's photographic evidence. Sometimes there are like stage design mock-ups, like almost like a painted background that you can see, costume design, that type of stuff also exists. So I'm hoping to get into the archives at the Austrian National Library and some of the major theaters that the productions that I'm looking at were staged at. I'm trying to get there hopefully next summer to do some archival work and look at those things and take pictures of them. But the other thing is composers were writing a text like scene description so in their score itself there's actually like a scene description of where the scene is taking place and some people are extraordinarily detailed so i have been just enjoying reading that and then i can listen to the music with the score and get a sense of how this could have been realized and what sort of impression i get from the sound of the music when there's no visual in front of me well i mean that's incredible especially when you have different people playing the instruments and music and reading the sheet music different ways and different conductors. And I'm sure that there's different ways that it can be interpreted and you, you have to kind of encompass all of those. Absolutely. And I think musicologists sort of understand, especially when we're working with historical stuff like this, that <laughs> people sort of like understand that there are assumptions you almost need, need to make, right? But we also are of the understanding that there is no 
<laughs> now we're getting into like ontological stuff on musicology. I'll stop soon. But they also understand that there's no work, like there is no work with quotation marks around it. Like we can't just like there is no one people can interpret Lord of the Rings in a trillion different ways. Similar to yeah. that with music, we get we ask music to do a lot of cultural work, right? Like Beethoven's ninth symphony has been used in, in many ways to reinforce di- many different things and yeah. that Beethoven never could have imagined, right? So there's no one Beethoven's ninth. So with these operas too, we're of the understanding that like, I can't come close to ever hunting down, you know, what the one meaning or one picture of the work is because that's not actually possible anyways, right? Yeah, there's value in a modern interpretation and how we use that going forward as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So you describe how offstage music sources are often placed in operas to create dreamlike or other spaces, metaphorical spaces. Mm-hmm. How does music like this affect the way that we can physically and verbally tell stories? Absolutely. I think the best way I can describe this is we are all familiar with retellings of things like Shakespeare, right? with remakes of classic kind of films. And opera often does that also with retellings about original stories. But that doesn't tell you anything about the music and offstage sound, sorry. What I'm trying to get to is that opera and film music are very similar and they use really, really similar effects. So early film composers actually were opera composers, like Eric Wolfgang Korngold was actually, you know, an opera composer before he fled the Third Reich and came to Hollywood. And sort of everyone knows about like horror edits of comedy film, like we can see those on YouTube, right? So mm. horror edits of comedies draw on editing and soundtrack kind of like techniques to get a certain mood across. And film music and, and opera do the same thing. So musical techniques like using offstage voices, especially offstage kind of musical sounds really influence the audience's mood and expectations for a scene. And they just set an atmosphere that sort of establishes an anticipation. But we also, audiences will recognize when music comes back, right? So offstage Hmm. spaces can become a place of sort of imagination for a character on stage. A character might be in a particular environment and hear something coming from a way often that's used to kind of evoke nature or like the vastness of, of space, right? Because they're trying to imagine that their world is bigger than that what's appearing on on stage, right? Yeah, because on stage you just have the stage and in film you may just have that, whatever that rectangle is, mm-hmm. whatever size that. When we hear voices in film that come from outside of that space and we haven't had a face for them yet, that's a real fascination mm. for people like the Wizard of Oz and villains that maybe only appear on a telephone first, but we don't see them. That type of stuff is like a really, really famous technique that's been used for a long time. And a lot of scholars have sort of gone in and analyzed that as an acousmatic voice, they call it. So there's a lot of power and there's a lot of like underlying cultural mythology that we sort of buy into with these types of techniques that we see again and again and again. And so musicologists and film studies, people are sort of going in and analyzing like what's happening and like, what are we thinking when we see these things or hear these things come up, right? For sure. Uh, The example that comes to mind for me is the Avengers theme. And how it's kind of evolved as, as what I think of when I hear it during those movies. I love those movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So you also talk about a connection between the physical space, the built space that we live in, whether it's the theater or wherever we're listening to the music or the play, watching the play, and the metaphorical space that is created by the music. Mm-hmm. So how do these two spaces influence each other? So this was such a good question. I sort of like had to think about it for a little bit. So music essentially is just vibrating air, right? And that's also just sound. 
sound, you know, vibrates the air around us. So we know that that happens. So, and we can listen to music in a lot of everyday places that we walk around in, right? We can listen to something in a church or in a concert hall through our headphones, obviously. That's a very new kind of everyday space for people to walk around in, this kind of portable headphones idea. But those are all physical spaces that we inhabit that we're experiencing music in physically, right? With the vibrating air type thing. But kind of the song or the piece of music itself can also evoke a space. And I, the example that sort of springs to mind is like the infinity loop at the end of a song, like Hey Jude with the na-na-nas that, you know, go on and on. That type of infinity loop that seems like it's going to go on forever and the fade out, you sort of get into a different zone in that type of moment, right? On a metaphorical level. Maybe there's a section of a symphony that has this beautiful floating feeling with just high strings that are sort of you know, this angelic moment, or maybe there's a moment in a piece where there's a breakdown and the beat changes and there's only an acapella choir. Like there's a killer's song that I'm thinking about. Those techniques, there, and there's so many more, those can all give the impression of feeling like we've entered another space or like another place. And the music itself can kind of be considered spatial. The way that we use language to talk about music is often spatial. Like we talk about high and low we talk about a sense of movement, we talk about return of the home key or of a theme, and a lot of other types of like metaphorical language we use to kind of talk around music, because music is such a tricky thing. Even in trained theorists and analysts use a lot of spatial metaphors to talk about music. It's so normal that we don't even notice anymore, right? So that's sort of what I'm interested in this idea that music evokes space while also being in a space. And those two kind of things can work together. Yeah. Something you said about the vibrations, that you're not only metaphorically changing the space of the music, you're, you're physically altering it in a way I haven't really thought about. Because I, I was at a techno club in London, yeah. and like that space would not be the same without the feeling the vibrations in my body, that sort of thing. Absolutely. As much as you're doing the metaphorical, that you're, you're probably physically influencing the audience as well. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that work on you know, music cognition and things that are actually studying those types of effects, like that type of bodily, like mapping of the sound onto people's bodies, and what types of like affect that, like that kind of interaction can create. And that's so cool. I mean, I know like next to nothing about that. But I think that's amazing. And I think, you know, we've all had that experience, right, of being, you know, transported, like you're in a concert hall, you're in a movie theater, and you love the score, and you get goosebumps, or you're sort of transported by this sound and and I'm with my own work I'm sort of interested in that happening but what environments are depicted in opera and like where are people absorbing these operas in like these outdoor garden sort of theaters I'm looking a lot at gardens and gardens on stage because gardens are often this kind of other space that allow certain social things to happen or sort of fantastical things to happen and often the music that is used or the ways that gardens are contrasted with the city especially is sort of this weird paradoxical thing because there's often audiences sitting in garden theaters watching and listening to this these musical events in real life too so I'm sort of interested in some of the collapsing of boundaries and interactions of these types of spaces and questions and yeah and are, are gardens, especially in Vienna, are they often built specifically for the purpose of having plays or, or shows or music, whatever there? Or are they kind of adjusted and adapted to be able to support that space? I think the latter, although gardens have for centuries been these performative sort of sites that have technological, a lot of people think gardens are nature or like this kind of uh, adapted nature, but gardens have long had technological 
wonders and and things that are constructed in them to like masked to make them look natural or masked to make them look authentic in some way so a lot of the garden theaters and restaurants and things that like permeate gardens in vienna around the early 20th century those spaces are adapted over time but often people have an ex like people that are going to these places have an expectation of what they can do in a garden and that involves musical entertainment it involves going to the cafe, going to a tavern to have a beer. It involves seeing a fireworks show. You know what I mean, right? There's these things that, these social spaces that are so multimedia. Yeah, really, really interesting. And so you are focusing specifically on gardens in Vienna yes. in, in Europe, research, correct? Mm-hmm. So the city of Vienna seems to be central to that. But what role has Vienna played in shaping the way that music is staged around the world and have other cities had as strong of an influence? Vienna is sort of almost like jokingly, it's almost like a cliche at this point that Vienna is considered like a city of music. And I think their entire tourism budget is like built on that idea. Mozart, you know, lived in Vienna for a long time. Beethoven was also there. Haydn, you have, you know, Brahms, you have, and so all the way up through the early 20th century, which is the era that I'm looking at, there's been people there for centuries that have, you know, influenced the kind of average person's understanding of music, Johann Strauss, right? Like these kind of like famous waltzes and stuff come right out of Vienna. But it's interesting because as kind of an urban site, Vienna has been less studied in terms of like cultural geography, at least in musicology, right? So cultural geography is like this idea that like social spaces, like places where people live, just this, the fact that it's a place that influences what activities go on there and, and things like that. So cultural geographers and people have adapted that type of idea to music history also. So Vienna actually has not been studied as much from a cultural geography type of perspective, whereas Paris, you know, Paris is huge for music in the early 20th century, also this kind of like hotbed of modernism. And, and same with New York. So a lot of New York and Paris, and you know, and London, absolutely. I'm just less familiar with that scholarship. But New York and Paris as major metropolitan kind of centers of the 19th and 20th centuries, music history sort of just interacts in these cities with other inventions and histories. And so film would be one of them. That's another kind of technology that is associated with Paris for sure at the end of the tw- at the end of the 19th century but also things like world exhibitions we know that there was that big chicago world exhibition paris also had those types of exhibitions that's where you know the eiffel tower was first unveiled and those types of world exhibitions bring people into contact with colonialism on a really real level and racism but a lot of composers also would encounter what they thought as you know world music at that time too, right? So you have kind of the really horrible exhibition of, of human beings as a spectacle for kind of like rich white people in, in Paris to go look at. And a lot of those people would have been dressed in, you know, this is quote unquote authentic costume or be performing on quote unquote authentic instruments. And some composers wow. would sort of use that type of sound in their own composition and be really inspired by that. So WC would be an example of that. So yeah, cities and and the places of cities and the technology of cities is always wrapped up in what musicians and music is being performed and, and developed also. So I'm curious with that, especially with the introduction of things like virtual reality, some of the ways that we can in a new way interact with virtual spaces. How do you see things like music starting to augment? How do you see the role of music being used differently in the future? Wow. Well, what I can say right now is that there's 
especially in musicology, a really new interest in video game music that, you know, film is even a fairly recent discipline, just being that the interest in that is from the late 80s onwards, at least in scholarship. So video game music has really taken off as a scholarly study right now. So I think a lot of questions about agency, like the player's agency and how that might change the musical kind of palette that that player is exposed to as they go through a game. That's sort of a big question right now that people are asking. And I I admit I'm not as familiar with video games, but I think when it comes to virtual reality, there's sort of these new things. I've seen them on social media sometimes, these 360 degree where you can turn your phone, for example, and it'll scan through like you're as if you're in a concert hall. You can be in a space like virtually and, and rotate yourself in your own place and like see around these kind of major theaters or spaces like that. And part of me wonders, like with that type of thing, can there be a soundtrack attached to it? Like, can you witness a performance live, right? Quote unquote live. But also, for example, there's hologram performers now. There was a hologram Tupac. Uh, Hatsune Miku is like this hologram only performing artist. And she will sell out like stadiums type thing. But there's these holograms of dead performers also like Maria Callas and Tupac. And yeah, it's pretty, and people go bananas for it. There's this weird nostalgia that people want to experience those performers, but there's ethics around the bodies of these dead people, like being almost reanimated with this contemporary technology. Do they they consent to this, right? Like, can we ever know that? Yeah. Hmm, Very interesting. I'm sure it's going to go in a lot of different directions. For sure. So let's kind of jump over to some of the application side. So you, you describe your research as interpretive with the goal of drawing the reader to seeing different historical connections or similarities. Yeah. What's an example of this and how can it influence a reader's future experience or, or current experience with music or stage work? Yeah. So first and foremost, I probably won't give an example from my own work because it's a little more less familiar maybe, but also I'm still working on it. But I think the main thing is music just doesn't exist in a vacuum. So developments in music often dovetail with other artistic and cultural developments like we've just kind of been talking about. So one example I can give that really blew my mind, I remember when I learned this, is that the scholars have sort of talked about how like sonata form, you know, if someone plays a piano sonata, music students kind of know what the kind of general genre expectations are for like a sonata. So, okay, scholars have talked about how sonata form in music comes about and sort of matures at around the same time as the novel becomes sort of the preeminent literary genre. And the novel and the sonata kind of have similar plot expectations or like a trajectory that involves kind of a journey of growth and discovery, a starting at home and a leaving home and an ultimate return home with the protagonist being changed in some way, right? These kind of larger scale genres like the novel were sort of matured in the early 19th century and like sort of started in the late 18th and came up sort of throughout the 19th century, right? And ultimately matured in like the Victorian novel being like its own kind of like genre. But this idea that these genres aren't static and and these types of, and scholars have sort of grounded those genres in values around the family unit, you know, certain gender roles that are expected in those types of genres also. And that all sort of dovetails with the social context and even philosophical things that are being talked about in terms of self-improvement and the enlightenment and in the romantic era, the the hero, right? This type of stuff. So, yeah. 
And is that a global phenomenon, both in music and in literature, or, or are there differences in Western, Eastern music culture? Oh, absolutely. So one of the major, when I say absolutely, I mean, absolutely, there are differences. And so one of the major things is that in North American institutions, musicology is considered the study of Western art music and some sacred music. So there's another discipline called ethnomusicology, and a lot of ethnomusicology scholars work on living musics, and some historical also, but a lot of ethnomusicologists work on living musical cultures around the world that are more international. So it's not that historical musicologists don't work on international music, because we certainly do, but it's Western art music particularly. The issue with that is that there's a lot of institutionalized you know, white supremacy built into the academy, right? And built into the things that we study. So we study a lot of old dead white men, especially even kind of the gender issue is still very much an important one in musicology, but certainly, you know, problematic whiteness and looking at to try to uncover composers of color or artists of color that have been active in the Western art music scene. That's an ongoing process and an ongoing thing that we're trying to continue, we're trying to decolonize musicology, right? Yeah. So there's, I wish I knew more about the history of, of Eastern music, especially, I wish I could speak to my students more about that, but sort of an ongoing, yeah. ongoing journey right now. <laughs> yeah. There must be difficulty just in, even in documentation of that sort of thing as well. For sure. And it's having familiar with other languages and yeah. Interesting. Uh, a lot going on. So <laughs> We talked about how understanding different interpretations of music and, and having different understandings of how it can influence your experience with music or stage work, but how can it influence the way that we think about other disciplines? So often with history majors, we talk about how you can start to influence politics or decisions in psychology. How can music do the same thing? So because the study of music like has so many disciplines, there are so many ways it can impact our understanding of science, politics, psychology, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, a lot of music cognition folks work on the psychology of music in terms of how we perceive or interpret sounds, timbres. They kind of look at that on a real like quantitative level. But even with musicology, for example, like even with more of the stuff, the hermeneutic sort of work that I do and that people you know like me do, Music has become really wrapped up in the history of science. So people that are looking at the history of scientific instruments are also fascinated by musical instruments because for a long time, those two disciplines were not seen as separate. Like in the quadrivium, music and math, you know, kind of existed as two different disciplines within that kind of like core set of studies that was like major up through the Renaissance. So people that are interested in that look at music, people interested in the history of recording technologies and how recording technologies impact our everyday are obviously kind of bumping up against music also. When it comes to politics, there was the kind of answers can be infinite. Like, so we all know that Wagner's operas are hugely historically important for a lot of different reasons, but he was also anti-Semitic, right? You know, and so his operas became used by Hitler and the Nazis for some pretty, you know, to kind of like reinforce some pretty problematic ideologies, obviously, that we know that led to Wagner being associated with Hitler and the Nazi party and, and obviously the Holocaust. And so even though Wagner himself, you know, was not involved in that, music can be kind of harnessed and used to perpetuate this kind of like German nationalist, Aryan supremacist like ideology, right? 
And we see that now on a kind of literal level with music being used at political rallies in the U.S. So some scholars like Dana Gorzolani-Mostak have looked at the soundtracks that get used at the national conventions for the different parties. So Republican National Convention, Democratic National Convention, what soundtracks are used deliberately, right? And what does that music tell us about what the values of those parties are, what they want their supporters to believe? And also, you know, we know that Trump didn't have consent to use Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which is an anti-Vietnam you know, song. And then Trump's using this as a Republican anthem and Springsteen is like, Hey, (laughs) you got the, you got it all wrong. Right. So music can be, can be twisted and engaged. And it kind of is this subliminal thing that we often don't, we let it go by. And then we realize, Oh my God, like this is making me feel a certain way, or it can lead to horrific Mm. things. Like, you know, with, we see what we see with Wagner and the Holocaust and how it got appropriated for those ends. Right. So music is very powerful in those ways. Wow, very interesting answer. So on the podcast, we also focus on the technological angle of the research. So what types of analytics in terms of data that you're using and analysis of the music itself do you or others that you know or work with in your space use to further the research? So I don't use a lot of quantitative data in my own research aside from dates and, you know, when things happened. But a lot of music analysts like certainly use a lot of quantitative data. So things like tempo and performance interpretation and timbre analysis are really major points of interest right now in music technology. So there's Mm -hmm. a scholar at McGill named Stephen McAdams who's doing a lot of work on that. Uh, Music cognition obviously uses a ton of quantitative data. So measuring brainwaves and perception and I can't even begin to pretend to know anything about that so but they certainly are more scientific kind of field than than I am and a lot of music theorists use formal analysis and that's sort of a framework that I engage in and that just kind of tries to help make sense of structure of really big works like symphonies and also small works like individual piano pieces or or songs and you know rhythmic analysis in terms of pop music is also a big thing so making sense of certain complex beat patterns and beat patterns and overall structure So those are some of the kind of like more quantitative analytics that people are using in in my field in general. Yes, I'm just curious with that. What's your thought on automatically generated music? Oh, I think that's so neat. I had to study last summer, I had like some huge exams. And I had to study one of my topics was electroacoustic music. So I studied a lot of like, right up through like different computer generated sort of algorithms, like algorithmic music or whatever. I think it's so fascinating things like laptop performance, whether that type of performance can be considered live. I think a lot of those types of like ontological questions are really interesting. I don't know a lot about technically how how that works necessarily but i think some of the questions that it raises are so neat and like get people thinking and i mean there were always like in the 18th century there were these really weird like musical automata like we think of music boxes right and there were these music automata that like looked like people you know playing instruments and they were just kind of robotic and those were yeah yeah creepy stuff and those were like a huge fascination for people in that era and were displayed in, in museums and, you know, or they are now they're displayed in museums now too, but they were used in musical clocks and this type of stuff. So it's been around for a long time, like the, the kind of premise of that. So in your field, all things musicology, what are you most excited about in the future? I think there's lots to look forward to musicology, like can be a bit slow to grow and a little bit conservative. <laughs> so, and those changes are, there are changes kind of happening right now. So I'm excited for like the increasing focus on decolonization. Like I said before, 
increased focus on equity and then also on pedagogy. So some a lot of tough conversations like need to continue to happen while we break down sort of the white, you know, patriarchy in the academy as a whole. So this is not just musicology, but a lot of other disciplines, but musicology has its own fights. So I'm excited to see what that changes for pedagogy, especially like how are we teaching people about music and how can we uproot mm. some kind of major myths around around music that we just kind of continue to hold on to, right? Yeah. And how about you? What's next for you in your future? So right now I'm working on the early stages of my dissertation. I have probably about three more years left in my doctorate. And then I'm hoping to, (laughs) the job market, you know, pans out okay for me. I hope to become, yeah, a professor of musicology. There's just been so many fascinating conversations, a lot of intellectual stimulation, mentorship and teaching at the grad school that I've been at in my grad school experience. So I just have been kind of inspired by that. And I'd love to keep that going and make a positive impact as a, as a professor one day. But if not, work in publishing would be another place I think about or in libraries, university libraries. And those are both super important, like behind the scenes sort of facets to the discipline that a lot of people don't actually right. know how important of a role those roles play, actually. Yeah, you dictate the information that people yeah, see, right? Yeah, for sure. Great. So we also ask this to everybody just to understand how people can get more involved in things they're passionate about. So how can the listeners of this podcast support your mission and research in their everyday lives? And how could they get more? I love this question. This is so great. I think my kind of first impulses are to say, go support the arts. You know, maybe you live in a city where there's been some ads for there's a symphony playing the full soundtrack of a movie. And you've always thought, hey, that sounds kind of neat but you need to get some friends together. I would say just go go check that out. Go support the arts. Go check those things out. Go to a jazz club, you know, explore new music, get excited about it in all forms, pop, classical, you know, whatever. Don't close your ears to anything. Like really be excited to go out and absorb the sounds around you. I would also say check out this blog. Uh, there's a blog called Musicology Now, which is run by my discipline. And it's sort of this online open access platform. And if you're interested in some of the things that I've talked about, you can go read the work of scholars that contribute to that blog. I've tried to give people credit by name as we've done the podcast. But yeah, please you know, mm. go check out Musicology Now. And also support artists of color and, and give them credit where credit is due. And pay attention to how people talk and think about music on the radio and and question bias, you know, and always be critical of your own preconceptions, you know, things like the Grammys, who are we awarding at the Grammys? What do those people look like? You know, who's being ignored in those types of award ceremonies or on the billboard charts? charts. Just start, you know, thinking about all of that, because all of that is all really deeply woven in our culture. And, and sometimes it, we sort of take those things for granted. Absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm going to a secret concert tonight where you just kind of pay for something and they, you don't know who's showing up. And now you've made me so excited about it. Cool. For the whole oh, conversation. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Great. So last question for you. The name of the podcast is Somebody Call a Doctor. So in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? This question is so funny. If you have an emergency and you need someone to make the best wedding playlist for you or like wedding music to hook up to play your wedding music for you to get that wedding playlist done... I got that on lock. Like I would make the best wedding playlist. I would make sure everyone's having a good time. And I would exclude all the really crappy songs that everyone's tired of hearing, but make sure we got the really, really good classic songs that people want to hear. It's going to be early 1900s Viennese music, right? No, no, no. I won't even pretend to like put that on anybody's playlist. It will be (laughs) like Michael Jackson. We'll have some good, good tunes. Yeah. But maybe a little bit of opera in case you wanted that, you know, of course, of course. Perfect. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sadie, thank you so, so much for your time. Really excited to see what your research ends up being. Yeah, thank you. This was so fun and all the best with the podcast. I can't wait to like listen to the other episodes and check out more and see see where you go with it. Yeah, thanks so much. Great. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today, we've been talking with Sadie Menacannon about her research in musicology and the role of music and everything from Viennese opera to modern film. For more information on Sadie, check out our website, somebodycalledphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycalledphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.